We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernane. Joining us today is Michael Quinn. I'm sure you've seen the article going around last week. Goalkeepers really are different. A team of scientists from Dublin City University proved for the first time that goalkeepers perceive the world very, very differently from outfield players and individuals with no football experience. So we're delighted to be joined by the lead author of that study today, Michael Quinn. You are going to love this, even if you're not a goalkeeper coach or a goalkeeper expert, which I'm sure as you all know, I am not. You are going to enjoy the perspective about the study and where perhaps goalkeeping may go and, in my eyes, position-specific work and specialised training. There are a lot of aspects of this that might point us to better solutions in the future and perhaps ways to align psychology, data, science and tactics all together. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please let me know. Modern Soccer Coach on Instagram, Modern Soccer Coach on Twitter. Here is Michael. Enjoy. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Really, really excited to have you on. Cheers, Gary. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, yeah, very excited to get going and get stuck in. Goalkeeping, first thing I said, well, I wish I could do more goalkeeping stuff. I don't do enough goalkeeping stuff. I saw that there was this article that blew up last week. Um, I thought, oh, that was interesting. I had a quick look at it. And then, lo and behold, I saw the Irish connection. And then, lo and behold, we're connected on LinkedIn. And lo and behold, you came back to me right away. So here we are. I suppose the first question, obviously, your goalkeeping connections, and we'll get to some of that in your background. But the, the idea of looking at the, you know, the perception and the cognitive aspects of goalkeeping and doing a study around that, where did that start, that process, I suppose? Yeah, so um, I suppose the kind of initial part of it was obviously I played in goal. Um, I stopped playing for a while to pursue other things and kind of to attend third level college in Ireland to attend university. And I kind of made a bit of a comeback, I suppose, about 19, 20-ish, um, which isn't old, obviously. I didn't think at the time, but uh, I had to relearn a lot of the skills. I couldn't understand why certain things were so difficult for me. Other things were easy on some days. And I was kind of selfishly trying to you know, using I kind of had the research skills I was kind of getting through DCU. Um, I was trying to kind of find something on goalkeeping, find this kind of um, elixir, so to speak, that would help me improve my performance and be, you know, the best keeper I could. And there was just nothing there really, um, which we found shocking. So I said, look, I'm going to, when I get the chance to do a bit of research, I think, you know, the least I can do is do it on goalkeepers. Um, and look, I was very lucky when I was given the chance as part of my thesis to, uh, to kind of, you know, pick and choose what I wanted to do. Um, I was set a task of maybe of doing a bit of a literature review on the space on goalkeeping and kind of the neural underpinnings of what's going on and different tests that happen. And there was just nothing really to write about. So we knew kind of there and then um, this is probably going to be a, a good one to get stuck into. Yeah, I mean, like every, every goalkeeper coach, and I don't think any outfield coach or outfield player would even disagree. It, it's such a mental position 
the psychological elements of it go from, I suppose, the, the, the biggest one I think is the bravery, just to go and stand there in the first place and then make the mistake and, and keep in the game and all that stuff. Well, the the aspects of what you were measuring, can you give us a little bit of a background into into what where the study stuff because there was as far as and and again correct me if I'm wrong here but there was a there was a control group there was a, a group of professional goalkeepers a group of outfield players and then there were players that never played so I suppose if that's correct how did you measure or what did you measure throughout that yeah so um, we had a group of kind of in terms of the data we used we had a group of twenty professional goalkeepers. Uh, 20 outfielders, all where everybody was kind of age appropriate, all between 18 and 40, I think was the cutoff. Um, and then 20 professional, or sorry, 20 kind of we call them lay people or people who've never played elite sport at any real level. Um, I'll be honest, it was a horrible study to be a participant in. It was, I'd love to say it was really uh, elaborate and it was a lab and it was footballs flying everywhere. It was literally sitting in a dark room listening to beeps and watching a screen flash for 45 minutes it was torture um a lot of people still haven't spoken to me since by the way but um yeah it was, uh, it was a tough kind of a study to do and it was during the height of the pandemic so you know it was kind of tricky to uh to recruit at that time i was lucky kind of i'd signed for a club now it ultimately didn't work out the league they were playing in was cancelled but um we were doing pre-season through zoom so it was great i was able to kind of get access to all these players um Likewise, when I finished my degree, we were able to gather a few more. When I was playing again um, in the Irish leagues, I was able to kind of literally come in off the pitch at full time and go, listen, can I have your phone number? I'll ring you during the week. Can we, you know, can you take part in this? Um, so that was how we got the people, I suppose, which is the harder, the harder part in terms of the science behind it. So we were measuring a thing called multi-sensory integration. So that is how your brain <clears throat> integrates sensory information from different sources. So obviously we were doing visual and audio so what you see and what you hear and how your brain can kind of i suppose manage that and interpret what's happening um and this test i was just again another bit of luck um my supervisor uh, dr david mcgovern in dcu big football fan which is uh, you know a bit rare in the field and truth um he was delighted to do it but kind of get involved in the project but also his background he'd used this test a lot previously so we knew there was nothing really done with professional athletes on this. Um, it had more so been done with kind of like elite musicians, um, maybe looking at, you know, um, kind of intellectual disability and neurodegenerative diseases and how this was measured. So it was never really done in this kind of area. So we looked at what the musicians had and we said, well, look, obviously, you know, they're trained to have exceptional pitch, whatever it might be. Um, and that's why they outperform people who've never played music before at this task. So we said maybe with football, you know, cues and goalkeepers having to try and make decisions all the time. And they're constantly trying to read the play, constantly trying to understand. And even in training, you're always making decisions. You're always anticipating what's going to happen, reading body language, you know, understanding when a player is giving you the eyes and they're going to try and roll it in the near post or, you know, all these different things that you have to do. And um, yeah, we just said, look, maybe there's some chance that goalkeepers have exceptional multi-sensory processing and maybe that's it maybe it isn't so we did the test like i said we were quite lucky um it was relatively quick getting all the data together and yeah it showed that goalkeepers have a thing called a narrower temporal binding window so that is basically at a certain point your brain when signals from, let's say auditory and visual something you see and something you hear happen closer and closer together there comes a point where your brain just binds it into one you just that's just the way it is your brain just says right that's the same thing basically in essence um 
we made this test we designed the test for the online version to you know get a pretty tight kind of temporal binding window so really test it out um and it's you know everybody kind of has a certain kind of i suppose um threshold for this goalkeepers and oftentimes we couldn't even get to the end of their range of that they were just so not fooled by the illusion they were so sharp in terms of their multi-sensory integration that um yeah we were kind of thrilled to get the result we did in truth really really interesting sounds not predictable but it sounds like you expected you know being a goalkeeper yourself you you would expect professional level goalkeeper would would be able to get that connection really really strong one thing and i read a few articles because it's funny like when you start reading the different news outlets there's one or two sentences that maybe one have that that another doesn't but the thing i was looking for was what was the difference between the the layman and the take the goalkeepers out? Was there a difference between the layman and the outfield players? There was indeed. So I kind of tearing it in performance. So goalkeepers were above and beyond the most impressive in terms of their performance. Outfield professional athletes were second, and professional footballers rather were second, and then laymen, as we're calling them, were third. They had the widest temporal binding window, so they fell for the illusion constantly at a much kind of slower. Pace, we'll say um but yeah again it kind of stands to reason and look our research doesn't say necessarily why this happened we have our own theories on it ours just shows there is a difference and i think it stands to reason you know, professional footballers no matter where you play on the pitch with a lot of decisions to make you're always kind of trying to read the play anticipate what's going to happen like we said about goalkeepers um just trying to you know give yourself best chance to uh to make an impact on a game so yeah we were kind of thrilled to see the outfielders obviously perform that little bit better too yeah, so what's the process of all right, so say you've you've done the you've done the study, you've got the results, it's kind of shaped up how you would you've you would have liked it to, you know, you've got the the clear differences between them, you've got the goalkeepers top and everyone. What's the next step then again with the world? Is it going to a publication or do you do you go to the media or how, how do you get eyes on this? Yeah, so I suppose the next step at the time was just to get the rest of my exams passed and get out of uh, my undergrad. That was that was all that was on my mind at the time, so I can go off and focus on my football. But um, yeah, once that was done, look, we knew we had a pretty striking result. We knew, you know, this is potentially something people will be interested in. Um, so yeah, we finished up. We recognised in order to get published, I think we had to get five more participants in each group. We did it with fifteen originally, so I had to get five more, which thankfully. I was playing foot, back playing football at the time, so I was able to recruit pretty quickly on that. It wasn't an issue. Um, but then, yeah, like this research would have started in December 2020, and we probably would have finished data collection at the end of 2021, um, kind of October, November 2021, I think is when we were finishing up. And in the meantime, it was literally just right-sizing it for these academic journals, which, look, they have their reason for doing so. We had to, first of all, I think, kind of all put our heads together, myself, David and Rebecca, uh, my co-authors and we have to say right well where will this fit and what you know what piece how do we frame it best so we approached current biology um they were our first choice in truth even when we spoke about it a year while we were recording it we were getting some of the results coming through going we might have something we they were our first choice um and conveniently they uh they they made us work for it you know there's a lot of changing things and rewriting and you know restructuring and kind of defending ourselves quite a lot and i have to thank david mcgovern for you know, he's the real brains behind him and Rebecca, I suppose, with the real brains behind it all um, in terms of kind of navigating that. But yeah, we did a press release and um, the, it went live last Monday, obviously, as we're recording this today. And 
we maybe anticipated a bit of local coverage or you know maybe the, you know the football community might find it interesting but um yeah i mean it's kind of it's blown up to put it nicely it's been a bit surreal in truth uh it's, it's fascinating because i think there's to me there's two big things the one is the goalkeeper communities or people i say the goalkeeper community who are saying i told you goalkeepers are saying i told you we're special and then the the people out there that are saying we told you you're weird so there's there's that there part but then there's also the part of and this is what the question i want to ask you there's the part on the on the training aspect of it so so and you see this a lot today and there's a little bit of a debate on on social media over i mean transfer of you see the the lasers or the tennis rackets and and all that there and and i wanted to kind of go a little bit deeper then with with your i know this isn't as much evidence-based but just your opinions as a goalkeeper and an expert in the field. But when, when you're looking at this and you're getting a clear difference between the elite goalkeeper, then is there an argument to be made for the benefits of training that is visual auditory? Is that the correct term? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that kind of, um, I suppose, yeah, the, the implementation of neuroscientific methodology, kind of evidence-based principles on that, um, that kind of psychophysical work, so to speak. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, and again, this is not what the research said. I'm giving you purely my kind of opinion and my background. So the reason we did the study in truth was to learn a bit more. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Um, I know even, you know, prior to obviously starting starting the pod, we were chatting offline or off air about it. Um, there are companies out there already who are starting to scratch the surface on this. I know of one championship club at the moment who in the last couple of years have massively outperformed expectation um, using a system that does exactly this. Now, they can make it context relevant, we'll say, because you can't actually play football in there, but it's they have a very, it's a couple of very interesting companies spreading up and some really cool science behind it. Um, so I definitely think there's a role for that. In terms of the issue we have, I suppose, is look, the bad actors in the space. You have these brain training games that came out 15 years ago that told everybody they won't get dementia, they won't get Alzheimer's, they're going to get an IQ of 200. Like it was just crazy stuff that kind of went on. And look, that was part of the learning too. I'm not saying all that was bad, um, but I think it left a bit of a sour taste in people's mouths. Obviously, then if you're talking in kind of football training world, I know in the goalkeeping world, the whole TikTok influencer space, there's been some crazy things you see people jumping out the back of cars, catching balls, and diving through, you know, tires that are on fire and might be some practical elements. I think, look, maybe as you were saying, that bravery piece earlier, um, you know, John, the craziness of it all, the weirdness of it all. Um, but yeah, I can say from my own background, I think for a goalkeeping perspective, we're talking strictly goalkeeping, anything that's improving that hand-eye coordination, that kind of proprioception there, you know, using heavier balls, lighter balls, balls that travel much quicker and practicing with these ones that swerve all over the place, which I know, because like every year Nike, Adidas, all the rest of them do everything they can to uh, to make life as hard as they can for goalkeepers. But um, I'm a big believer in this kind of, you know, trying different things, trialing different ideas. So, you know, whether it's like we said, um, I think we we're chatting earlier saying about tennis balls, ping pong balls, um, even playing other sports, I think the skills carry over nicely. And um, as well, the point is, as a goalkeeper, it's nice to get a bit of variation and routine. You know, it's, it's oftentimes in your training, you're doing 10 volleys, 10 dips, 10 half volleys. So when you kind of mix it up a bit, I feel like, you know, even the excitement of it alone can be uh, can be a great boost. Well, yeah, in a professional environment and you're out probably 30 to 45 minutes, goalkeeping today is, is such a refined training regime that 
yeah, you're doing the same thing every day. That can get old real quick. Whenever you're looking at saying like, all right, so the, the visual part of it, and again, you're saying that the space is starting to get filled with that there, and uh, even VR coming in and saying like, all right, well, you know, which I've I've tested some of this stuff, and it's it is live. I was impacted by it. I thought, wow, this could this could really help a player. Um, I remember a few years ago. No, I was about twenty years ago. I did a coaching license in Belfast. Chris Coleman was on. He was doing a demo, and he was doing it. He had, he had a defender facing away with a mannequin behind him, and a and a person that was chipping a ball into the mannequin, so the defender couldn't see it. And you would you would go on the sound of the ball rather than the you know typical traditional go turn and. I just thought, wow, that's really, really interesting. Makes you focus a little bit more. Um, never seen it until like this made me think of it. The last, if it's not twenty years ago, it's eighteen, nineteen. But the question I wanted to ask was, is that is that auditory? Is that something that you know you're talking about visual auditory developing? But even the auditory alone, is there a value in being able to listen better? I think there is. I think, look, if you talk, um, I could kind of go back to that in a second, but if you talk, let's say, another sport, golf, for example, an elite level golfer can tell a flush, really crisp golf shot from maybe a thinly struck one or maybe one hit out the toe of the club purely by the noise they can tell. So, so much of golf, the feel of hitting a ball is the auditory feedback they get. It's incredible. There's a lot of kind of cool research on that. Um, Going back to the football side, I think that's actually better again than someone shouting go understanding i suppose without knowing the drill if they were trying to anticipate where that ball might be if it was being clipped over the top or if it was hitting the mat whatever it might be they are without being fully conscious of it probably registering right well that one's flush on the laces that's going to carry an extra five yards i'm going to you know cover the i'm going to go a bit quicker or that sound like he kind of scuffed his studs as he kicked that that might come up a little shorter actually i might have time to turn and face it and then drop off it's in terms of kind of goalkeepers i can put it back to um there's massive value in it like it's incredible how, particularly with the mishit shots, I feel like a lot of goalkeeping service, it's perfect. The goalkeeper coaches all struck the ball lovely. It comes at you very clean. It flies through. It comes into your hands. But um, it can be horrible when you have, you know, somebody who kind of shins one a little bit and it's dipping all over the place and it's moving. It's very easy for you to recognise the one that struck well because you know this is coming at me fast, I make the save. But these kind of unusual outlier ones of these slow balls that catch you out, I know baseball is something similar, if we can get used to the noise of those things, I do think there's value there, even if we don't consciously process it and go, right, I've heard that, so it's this. I just think, you know, our uh, capability to react and integrate that info is, is far beyond what, what we're giving credit for. Crazy, crazy. Because I, I look at the goalkeeper space, right, and I, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, So and you'll you'll see that when I ask this question. But when I look at it, and I look, and I, I do have an appreciation for the, I've seen it up close, like I've seen, I've seen periodization plans, I've seen, uh, the analysis side i've seen the daily training and it's it's spot it, it does not get the credit it deserves in the coaching community about how advanced the goalkeeping preparation and positional specific work they're doing is but i look at it and i think like how much more percent can you get out of that there you know like is there that's got to be close to be you you think there is you think there's a big I guess, yeah Sorry for cutting across, you know, it's kind of something I'm passionate about, so I've got a lot to say on it. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely think there is. I think it's been incredible to see the advancement, even in the last 10 years, you can see the, the strides that have been taken. Um, 
it's been incredible. Yeah, nothing but positive things to say on that side of it. But we have, you know, like we were saying previously, this whole idea that 20, 30 years ago, statistics became this huge part of sports, Billy Bean, um, you know, the open days and this incredible story that, you know, clubs like Brentford, whose entire model is based off it. And it's it's amazing the kind of utility clubs. I, I don't know of any top, top, top level clubs that aren't taking advantage of those kind of statistical models and what they can learn from it. Um, do you think like anything, you know, there comes a point where it's not redundant, but it becomes a point where, you know, everyone's doing it. So where is the real competitive advantage? It's only not doing it that you fall behind. Talking about what the next thing to kind of move the needle on that and why I would have got into the area I have is personally, I believe it will be understanding the neural kind of underpinnings of performance, basically. So what's going on neurally that's making us play better? How are we making those decisions? How does Lionel Messi keeps scoring these wonder goals. Um, how does Manuel Neuer judge that ball over the top so well? Um, why is it that maybe a certain keeper who on paper looks fantastic is having a really tough time at the moment? And, you know, he's training the exact same. And why can we, we don't think, seem to think it's a confidence issue. Why does it seem that he keeps getting unlucky or he keeps making the wrong decision? I just think there's so much more there. And, um, yeah, personally, I think there's a lot more juice to squeeze on it. Obviously, the game's always changing too. I'm sure uh, as goalkeepers start to get a handle on it and start to improve, well, FIFA will probably change another rule, but um, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I think, and that's just in goalkeeping. I think for outfield players too, um, yeah, I think there's plenty, plenty more kind of digging to do here. Hello, coaches. You asked and we delivered. One of the most popular requests we get on this channel is passive warm-ups. And it's not the regular slow way to be passing exercises. No, what coaches are looking for is the one-touch, intricate combination type exercises with that emphasis on quality, technique and tempo. So we have decided to put 30 of these exercises together and release them on an ebook that you can get access to right away. If you're a youth coach who's looking for some extra technical work, or you're even a college coach or a club coach working with older players, looking for some warm-up exercises or some pictures to align with your tactical objectives, we can help you out. Our new ebook, 30 Passing Practices, is available on the link below. It's a PowerPoint that includes video, session details, and coaching points on each slide. Tons of ideas, tons of different pictures, lots of adaptions. You can get it on the link below or at modernsoccercoach.com slash shop. Thanks for the support and enjoy. Yeah, it brings us along nicely. Then that where does when the study is the beeps, which I would I would associate with reaction times, where does that kind of start to expand? Maybe you've you might have already answered this already with the explore the, the auditory aspect of it. Where does this expand then to, to your saying then decisions and perception and maybe anticipation and all those areas? Yeah, so as the study, our study, um, we didn't strictly measure reactions time. It's something I want to kind of get across. So the reaction time will be obviously your ability to do something in response to a stimulus and how long it took you. People weren't timed in their responses to say, basically, to give anybody who didn't see the test a quick overview. Like I said, sitting in a dark room, staring at a screen, um, you know, hating the fact that you said yes to doing something I asked uh, the week before. Um, you were literally presented with a stimulus. So it was either one or two flashes paired with either one or two beeps. And the synchronous one, which is where it's all, you know, there's no illusion, is one flash happens paired with a beep at the same time or two flashes happen paired with two beeps. Very easy. Um, 
you know, very few people make mistakes in that one unless they're getting bored maybe. But the flip one is when we make it asynchronous. So when we pair one beep with two flashes or, um, you know, maybe two beeps and one flash, that's when your brain starts playing tricks on you. We weren't being like fastest finger on the buzzer. You know, you have to, who's going to be quick? People were basically, you know, there was a queue, which was like across the middle of the screen that they were staring at. This happened. And then the screen would say, how many, uh, how many flashes did you see? One or two. And you had, as long as you liked answers. Um, essentially, look, when the flash, is, obviously the timing, the distance between in terms of, look, if you had a flash, then a beep, or, sorry, if you had a beep, a second later there's a flash, and a second later there's another beep, it's not going to trick you. But if you had those beeps happen really close together, um, either side of the flash or paired with the flash, that's when it starts to trick people. Um, so again, I've probably made a bit of a dog's dinner explaining that. Um, kind of gone blue at this stage from the, uh, from the kind of trying to explain it properly. Um, I hope I've got across how awful it was to do it, by the way. But um, yeah, we didn't strictly measure that reaction time. Like I said, that piece wasn't necessarily there. Do I think goalkeepers also have superior reaction times? Totally biased, yeah, I do. Um, totally in my own subjective experience. And as you were saying earlier, goalkeepers saying we're all special, we told you all. Um, yeah, that, that big ego part of me definitely says so. Um, but yeah, look, in terms of the decision-making aspect then, look, if we can, without giving too much away, in terms of the decision-making, there's obviously a neural process that kind of underlies that, let's say. Um, and the more efficient that process is, the better, the quicker we can make a decision, um, or the quicker that we're able to make a decision, the better decisions we can really make. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff we go into here about cues and like if we talk penalties, for example, guessing the right way, the most accurate giveaway for where someone's going to put a penalty happens right before they kick it. So if you think of the whole run up and before someone kicks it, centre forward is staring to his right. Well, that doesn't mean he's going to go to his right, does it? He might, he might not, he might give him the eyes. Probably not that accurate. He starts running up and angling his body a certain way. There might be 25% chance that's a giveaway, probably not. But these split seconds before he plants his foot to strike the ball, the direction of the foot plant, everything else, that is what kind of gives it away. That's the most reliable cue. And that's been studied. And it's, it's a brilliant kind of piece of uh, piece of research. I mean, time to look it up. But um, the problem with that is we don't consciously know as a goalkeeper that's actually what we're, what we're watching. We're just going by what comes into our head. Obviously, now you've got the likes of Pickford with people in penalty plays. And that's a whole other thing. But in terms of, let's say, you know, an amateur game, you don't know the guy. A goalkeeper making that decision doesn't really know what's actually informing it. But if we had a way of, I suppose, measuring it, understanding it, and then, you know, kind of being able to see, right, well, maybe this goalkeeper decision-making process isn't quite where it needs to be yet. How can we train that? How can we get it better? Because maybe physically and technically he's superb. And this is the last little kind of bit that could get him over the line to having a, a big career. Um, that's where the further research comes. Obviously, there's the ideas about frame rate then. So we always heard about, I'll go back to Lionel Messi, how the game happens in slow motion around him. Um, like the way your your monitor or your computer screen has a frame rate, so do we, so do our brains and what we can process and how quickly we can do it. Um, I personally believe we can measure, but it is measurable. And I believe that we can use that to kind of inform training protocols. So we know the day before a game, well, if we do this five aside in this really tight little indoor pitch in this corner of it, and you know, there's a rondo with 20 players involved and it's frantic and this ball's been going everywhere. Does that kind of increase frame rate? Does that help? Um, kind of very subjective experience that could be, and maybe some younger players can kind of can relate to this. I know I can from my own experience was when you go up and train with the older team before your own team trained and you would train, maybe they were stuck for players, you got called into the first team 
and it was just a million miles an hour. There's bodies everywhere, there's balls, everyone's touch is quick. The second you take a touch, someone's on you. And then an hour later, you go and train with your own teammates and you know, you could read a book while playing at that stage. You're just, you know, everything's so much slower. I again think that's trainable. I think it's measurable. I think at the moment we're getting an understanding of it, but there's just so much more to uh to go on that. Apologies, I don't even think I've answered your question there, but um, ran over. <laughs> no no it's oh we're, we're going into an like and this is an area that i want to actually get into which is the accumulation maybe of decision making where i mean every football is a decision making sport now tactically uh in all positions i would say but even i would say for a goalkeeper seeing it from an analytical standpoint a defender or a midfielder in, in, from a defensive aspect it's usually it's usually zonal or it's man-to-man uh, but the goalkeeper has the distances, the moment, the reflexes, and the margins are way thinner, so the pressure is higher. Mm. The, the only real time I see that goalkeeper being off the clock is when the ball's oh, honestly like a set piece at the other end. Anything else, the ball, it's it's managing some part of the game. So should we be, or or you know, we talked a little bit about this before about psychological load. Should we be a bit more aware, or are we? Is that something that's going to, just going to take research? Do you think? I think so. Look, I think we were obviously chatting off air about certain things and the psychological load and how that can impact performance. I think so. I think look, the stress of playing into goal. I'd love to see kind of cortisol levels. I'd have dread to think what my whoop would have come up with if uh, I had one at the time when I was playing. It would have been, um, but like anybody can relate if they've played in kind of a high intensity game and, you know, maybe it's an evening time, they don't sleep till 2, 3, 4 a.m. afterwards because adrenaline and everything else, um, you know, even goalkeepers who present very coolly on the pitch, I'm sure they're still having, you know, internally they're screaming almost at times. Uh, they need a lot of pressure um, and some people really enjoy that, some people don't. Um, yeah, I definitely think goalkeeping. Look, physically, there is quite a load to it as well. Maybe not on game day. Mileage covered isn't quite the same. Training during the week can be tough on your body. Um, if you ask any experienced keeper to have a look at his hands, that'll show you that. You know, their fingers are always pointing east and west. But um, I definitely think that psychological load piece, you know, I think we made the point that, you know, obviously we're chatting off everybody and you said the goalkeepers seem to receive a lot of info during the week and then come game day and really said to them, it's rare a goalkeeper kind of sprints on the pitch and said, you need to do this, start kicking there. Half time, you might get some feedback. Um, so, yeah, I, I do see that changing, hopefully. Um, I know Arteta recently came out and said he thought about subbing off goalkeepers and I, I personally do actually think that will be a thing quite soon. Um, do you really? I genuinely do, yeah. I think if you look at, you know, kind of um, special teams players in the NFL, for example, or, you know, how you can make tactical switches. Like if you're, I think it was the Ben Foster podcast, um, kind of something similar during the week where they were saying, if you have a goalkeeper who's six foot tall, brilliant, rapid, plays out from the back really well, and then you're one nil up, 20 minutes to go, and they bring on Rory Lapp and Peter Crouch, or my old man even, you know, and they're just going to be putting balls under the crossbar and you have Nick Pope sitting on the bench. I think it makes sense to bring on Nick Pope. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know he's going to come out and claim it and he's going to give you a better chance. I'm not saying every single game it should happen, but I do think that's probably where it's heading. Could be proven wrong. Could well be proven wrong on that. Uh, might just be another mad goalkeeping experiment. I actually thought he was just kind of winding up some people because I think it would just be chaos, Michael. So, for example, if, if we talk about psychological load, the stress that... In the sense that you... The, the example you just used, I get that, like different threat. But in terms of, okay, well, hey, 
Michael's dropped a couple there. He's looking a bit shaky. Like if it goes that direction, could be could be great entertainment, mind you. Yeah, I think. Look, the other side of it is though, if you'd have asked a goalkeeper twenty years ago to do what Edison does now, mm-hmm. um, there's no chance. And then you've just landed on them and say, right, we're doing this, and this is how it's going to be. They're going to go, no, absolutely not. I'm going to have a heart attack. I can't handle this. Like. Whereas I think it's a case that if kids are brought up doing this and if it's part of the development pattern that we know, right, well, we're going to rotate goalkeepers. We're not going to have a one and two structure anymore. And certain games, we're going to make changes during the game. Um, you know, I do think there, you know, there's potentially, again, could be total waffle, could be way off the mark. Um, yeah, I, I kind of do see where you're coming from about the craziness thing. But um, I do personally, uh, looking ahead, it is something that I would like to at least see trials for the entertainment value alone. Um, I think it would be it would be brilliant. But yeah, going back to what you're saying about the psychological load on goalkeepers, I think that does need to be measured. I think it definitely does. I think um, the recovery days, everything else are great physically for, for everybody. It's very rare your goalkeeper is in agony the next day after a game and it's full of lactic acid and all that kind of thing. Um, you might have some you know tight hips or something from kicking balls, but it's more the psychological load. I do think there should be... Um, things put in place to help cope with that really you know um the same way you've worked nice well-being in other jobs um you know people are kind of given their space and given time to do other stuff aside from it i think in uh, high stress positions like goalkeeping that should be kind of something that's looked at and definitely researched yeah i've i actually read les seeley's book a few weeks ago you would you would be too young to remember les seeley i bet you he was man united like a backup to schmeichel early schmeichel um Oh, but your dad would have played against him a hundred times. He would have been late 80s, early 90s. But he won the FA Cup. It was Ferguson's uh, biggest call. I, I was actually at the first game. I was 10 years of age. FA Cup final, 1990. I was there. And uh, the Jim Layton was the goalkeeper. Had a howler, 3-3 Palace replay. Ferguson dropped his goalkeeper to play Les Seeley. I think he played one game that year, but it was way his loan was expiring the week before it there's a whole story to but but it's the different personalities of the different goalkeepers he knew Leighton would been rattled by you know conceding and crosses and a big physical team he knew Seeley didn't care so and I'm reading it from a coaching perspective thinking you know sometimes it's a different mindset where someone doesn't care about something but actually suits a, a type of context and I think that's the thing with goalkeeping where it's becoming really interesting. Where are we moving away from the the crazy goalkeeper that the gravel hours again from the yesterday and the Higitas? And are we moving now towards they're so sensible, Michael? These guys are so level headed. But but if that's the decisions that have to. Be, there's way more to the game now. But I wonder is that shaping a personality or am I way off on this? No, I, I'd agree in truth in parts. Um, and I do think, you know, the more data we have and the more kind of understanding we get around the position, you know, the less guesswork it is and the less unnecessary risks are taken. Or, you know, um, I definitely think that's a factor in it. Um, I think to talk about a coach who's done a phenomenal job bringing through goalkeepers, if we're talking about this calm, level-headed, kind of, you know, clinical approach almost. There's a guy called Mark Prudo at Sunderland. Um, he's brought through Jordan Pickford, you've got Anthony Patterson at the moment, there's more coming through, he's, I mean, that's only named a few by the way, he's worked with, I think something like six England number ones, but his big thing is this kind of like relaxed, laid back, um, I know Pickford doesn't seem laid back, but like this kind of social element, people become real strong characters, anyone who's played under him for a period, they always go on to do very well, um, 
And I, I definitely think there's something in that. Um, this whole goalkeepers are mad thing. I still think there's an element of it. Like, I don't know. I can't say why I, what made me go on goal. I kind of dread to study it in truth. <laughs> I don't really want to know, I don't think. Um, but yeah, you're there to be shot at. And it's, you know, there is something kind of unusual about people who get attracted to the position as we've alluded to earlier. Um, in terms of kind of moving forward and getting to this more, you know, sensible approach to goalkeeping, I think it's there. But I also just think it's, like we said, you're more informed now. You know kind of exactly what's asked of you. You're getting the reps you need during the week. Um, I still think there is a bit of room for the madness and I hope it doesn't die out totally. I'd hate to see, uh, you know, the boring goalkeepers kind of club being a thing. But um, yeah, I do think that's the way it's probably headed. But Again, you look in the Premier League, you've got Aaron Ramsdale, who's, you know, big, boisterous character who seems to be doing well. But, um, you know, it is, I think, in football in general, I think character probably is going out again. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, just generally it is, isn't it? Yeah, for a number of reasons, society, blah, blah, blah. Um, when when you're, I, I looked at, at some of your LinkedIn posts last night, you shared something, and it was a long time ago, uh, it was about that you work with a modern goalkeeper or like a methodology for for young goalkeeper and i was like oh this is great because you know, a lot of what we're talking about today is is you mentioned data and higher level and the science and you know we're going to get there but you're you're looking at a goalkeeper who's taken a 12 year old on a sunday morning and doesn't have the information to get all this and doesn't have even video like what are some things that you think Again, knowing now with your experience and your research, do you think that are important, I suppose, psychological underpinnings of that development age group? I think you can't have a culture where results come first and you can't have a culture where it's let's just minimise mistakes. Don't go beat your near post. Don't come for a cross if you don't think you can get there. Um, you know, that has to go. Kick it long every time. Kick it over everyone's head. It's not your fault. I can say I was forced to play some great clubs when I was younger. There was some that weren't so great. Some coaches that, you know, at 12 years of age, you're going, oh my God, a coach can lose his job if, you know, in the reality, he's a principal in the local school. Like, it's just, it's crazy, but like people get so wrapped up and it's a fantastic part of the game, why we all love it. But I think at that age, you have to be able to make mistakes and it has to almost be laughed at almost. You have to find a coping mechanism. Um, mine as I got older and sadly, you know, well, not sadly, it was kind of grateful. It didn't necessarily work out against the level I wanted to, but just to have a laugh just without obviously doing it in front of people and they think that i was throwing it in and just you know but it was just to go oh mikey come on how have you done that how have you let that one in or why do you think you get that cross so i'm just laughing about right over now we'll carry on like let's see what we can do and um, staying out of that real high arousal screaming clicking goalposts and you know all the kind of self-destructive stuff that comes in i just think that environment another thing i think this is probably something for more soccer parents than anything else in the us particularly and obviously in ireland is game doesn't have to be analysed to death after a match straight away. You know, your son or daughter gets in the car after making a mistake as a goalkeeper. They know they've made that mistake. You don't need to get them in the car and tell them everything they did wrong and what they could have done. Go off, do whatever the rest of your day looks like. And if they bring it up at dinner, then you can talk about it. Um, and then obviously, yeah, as a goalkeeper, like don't be afraid to, you know, say it. Like, look, lads, I'm sorry I made a mistake. I am trying here and I'm going to keep making mistakes. But ultimately, that's how you get better. Um yeah, I mean, there are definitely just things. And we're talking on the negative side. The other side, in terms of, like, you know, real practical, tangible stuff we can do, I um, was lucky. I didn't get siloed into playing one sport at an early age. I got to play a lot of different things, whether it was Gaelic football, um, golf, rugby, whatever it might be. And they all kind of stood to me. And what we were talking about earlier, those kind of, you know, out-of-context trainings, those kind of learnings to carry across. Mm-hmm. Couldn't advocate for that more. Um, really do think that as a young athlete, it's one of the best things you can do.
one of my sons, seven years old, and he's just getting into football, and he's like, as soon as this is over, he's like, Dad, will you come and take some shots at me as a goalkeeper? So I'm going to do all the things you said not to do so that he doesn't become a goalkeeper. <laughs> Let's talk about the Gaelic training. Um, I mean, it's a sport that, that I'm, I'm fairly familiar with, being from Throne and, and understanding the advances there in Gaelic and rugby in terms of the the comparisons of the environment. I mean, what are some things that Gaelic are doing that soccer isn't? Yeah, I think Gaelic, um, if we're talking higher level, higher picture, I think, um, you know, it's got to a point now where it's a little slower in truth, like we were saying about football, you know, and it's people understand systems and they have their kind of uh, models that they stick to and patterns play, whatever it might be. Slow the game down a little in some ways. I think, obviously, look, Gaelic footballers now, they're, like very lean rugby players in truth they're just obviously the game isn't as long they don't cover as much ground but they're just you know colossal specimens um with serious physical kind of capabilities um so that's kind of one side of it um you know i do think the physical side of it they are you know they just the uptake is huge in terms of we're looking at kind of strictly goalkeeping and the crossover from what i've been dealing with um very different positions i would say gaelic football goalkeeper at times they're a quarterback so at the restart from a goal kick for anyone who doesn't know it's sort of like an contested kick out um but everybody's man marked out the field all the way down to the other goals so you have to with movement and you have to try and flight passes and you know oftentimes and not great goal mouths and cross wins and football is a little bit heavier than a soccer ball it's like an old leather ball so the kind of skill and the ability to recognize you know cover defenses you guys have in the uh you know the nfl and recognize the gonzone is a man-to-man um is that you know that midfielder that receiver of the ball is he having you know does he have a massive advantage over the guy picking him up can we there's a lot to it on that side which is why i was hopeful when i went back to football it was going to make me a better keeper uh sadly wasn't the case um, <laughs> i didn't have to take a two touch a first touch for two years so that kind of killed me <laughs> every second touch was a tackle or a clearance but um yeah i think that's one side of it i do think it's a lot more of that throwback goalkeeper there's a lot of high balls putting on top of you there's no protection for goalkeepers you're an outfield player as such you just happens to wear different jerseys so a lot more physical contact it's a lot slower um i will say that but the ball um it travels harder if that makes sense when it hits you it, it leaves a mark so um yeah that's kind of the differences there there's a lot of obviously the Irish goalkeeping contingent. You know, you look back on Shea Given, all the ones back through the years who would have played Gaelic football growing up. And I do think there's something in that. And likewise, I know in the US, um, there's that stuff about a lot of the kind of basketball playing guys have gone done very well in goalkeeping and the handler coordination sports. Um but yeah, the Gaelic environment is interesting. I was lucky I've been able to coach the last three years with Kildare under 20 goalkeepers um in Gaelic football which was you know, a great experience. You're getting guys at 17, 18, 19 um, years of age and kind of real forms of time leaving, you know, secondary school or high school, but, you know, going on to do maybe college, some are doing apprenticeships, some are figuring it out. And it was just, it was brilliant, uh, really great time. And luckily we won an all our medal this year to kind of see it off. So it was a great kind of, kind of gone out in the high, it was brilliant. But um, even in that, you talk about the kind of coaching of it, um, it still is very much a case of like the point you made earlier, right? You're a goalkeeping coach. You guys go right down that corner of the pitch, and uh, we'll blow a whistle when we need just jump and go for some penalties at the end, kind of thing. And it's it is that still a little bit behind in that way. But um, 
one thing I will say that Gaelic football does far better than football, and you know, going back and saying this is they push you to do. Obviously, the fact it's an amateur sport, they really push the development away from the game, and that was great for our goalkeepers this year. Um, you know, they were able to. We were able to go out and do different things. Maybe after training, we could all. It wasn't frowned upon for us to go and have a coffee at the local shopping centre and chill out for a few hours and like be mates away from it. And then we got to work. It was work. Um, a lot of them would have done maybe like going to the beach after training together and that kind of bonding thing, um, which I think football is losing out on a bit. Also, you know, helping guys out, like, you know, some of them maybe were doing exams and subjects that I don't, we could all kind of link in. I think that community element and that kind of understanding, this is one part of our lives, we all have this separate idea, probably um, probably isn't quite there in football. Obviously, the pressure in these environments is different, but just even at underage youth soccer, elite academies, I think there could be more done on that, definitely. You mentioned, or no, you didn't mention. You said it in one of the articles I read that it was like this is the the start, the next. Uh, you might look at some different positions or different aspects of the game. Have you have you got the? It sounds like you want a bit of a break before you get back into another study. But have you any ideas? Yeah, we kind of we're looking at a few projects. Um, there's kind of applications. Obviously, I won't be the lead researcher on a lot of it. I still want to stay involved. Um, it's a great team that we kind of have, and myself, David, Rebecca, and. Potentially one or two others might be joining joining up, um, which would be fantastic. Um, yeah, I suppose we're going to kind of go, we're taking our time. We don't want to rush into a project because obviously it's someone doing their PhD on this. Hopefully it will be kind of a long-term plan. And um, I can safely say it won't be me for the foreseeable. I do not want to go back into, uh, back into academia for a long, long time. I will, I'm sure, at some stage. But um, yeah, that's kind of the next step is kind of identifying a candidate, figuring out what exactly and where you want to look at. Um, I think youth soccer is going to be the next step, really, kind of studying the development. So our study was great for telling us that goalkeepers sense things differently and perceive the world differently. It was great, kind of cool headline, so to speak. Um, why that actually was, well, I've spent most of the day talking about why I thought it was. We don't have clear, to say, like objective proof of what that is. So I think we need that nature versus nurture debate. Is this just goalkeepers naturally have this better temporal binding and they end up playing in goal? Or is it the opposite, which is what I believe that through years and years of training and doing all the things that make them, you know, good goalkeepers, it's kind of sharpened them to be better at this. Um, I also think, in truth, something that we kind of was just a convenience thing, but there was no women's football players involved in our study, just purely because it was so hard to get participants at that time. I just went my own network. The next step will also be involved the women's game to have a look at that, maybe different changes you'd see. Um, yeah, I think there's plenty more to be done here. Obviously, I'll always kind of, you know, fly the flag for goalkeepers and I'll want to include them in anything we do. But um, I think, you know, there's probably a bigger picture here in terms of uh, processing in general and, you know, visual auditory, whatever it might be, the decision-making powers, the frame rates, whatever that might look like. I think there's, uh, there's quite a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, it's actually a nice way to finish it because when, when and we spoke a little bit about this before, about the psychology aspect and something that I find today that when a bit of research comes out, about something that maybe puts a certain aspect in light. The psychologists are all like, ha, told you, you need us here. You know, and it's like, all right, now we need to hire 100 sports psychologists. But but what you, I think you've done a really, really good job in, in, in actually detailing that there are, there's so many elements to this here, right? They're, like you have, the, there's a psych side and there's a neuroscience side and there's also an understanding context of goalkeeping. And then the development side, so it's it's literally just scratching the surface of where you could go with it. 
Absolutely. And um, look, as much as I'd love to be here selling a product for you know a million dollar product and everybody on the podcast and plugging it in and telling everyone you wear this head device or whatever it might be. Um, no, look, unfortunately, I haven't, we haven't quite got there yet, but uh, maybe next time on the show, I'll have something to, uh, something to plug. Um, but yeah, exactly that. Look, it was a great piece of research. It was really widely kind of uh, really nicely, I suppose, taken in and there's been some brilliant feedback and it was kind of a nice nice to, uh, to get a win for the goalkeepers for once so um yeah it was kind of a, it was a nice project but um yeah looking forward to what's coming next this has been brilliant michael i've uh i've really really enjoyed it. i enjoyed I actually enjoyed like reading a bit more about this and and thinking a bit more about it for the for the podcast so thanks so much for coming on and we'll have to get you on again now and and uh challenge us a little bit more on what we're doing absolutely gary thanks for having me on Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kerneen on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.